You're listening to That'll Preach. I'm Brian, joined by Paul. And we're going to be wrapping up our series on the book Miracles by C.S. Lewis. And it's been quite the ride so far, hasn't it, Paul? Yeah, we had some hot takes about Lewis, St. Louis. Disagreed with Lewis, showed all the places that Lewis was wrong. We did, we did. I mean, do you think that people uh, are too uncritical of Lewis? I think evangelicals tend to have I think evangelicals. (laughs) I know. The Trump-loving 81% of white evangelicals. (laughs) I knew you were going to say something. Fine. American Christians tend to have a very uncritical lens through which they see Lewis, which, fair enough, he's great. I love Lewis like anyone else. He's fantastic. Look, evangelicals do weird stuff. We so do. we got to admit that. They host podcasts they host, called they That'll Preach. <laughs> but uh, yeah, I mean, look, we're not trying to like be, con- I mean, we are trying to be controversial, but we're, but, but the thing with Lewis is, <laughs> you know, he's, he's great. Yeah. I'm he's really great. And then sometimes he's not so great. Sure. And that's what you do when you read these, these, uh, these brilliant thinkers and writers. We're humanizing humanizing, St. Louis. We're humanizing St. Louis. Exactly. (laughs) Yeah. People call him the patron saint of evangelicalism. There you go. See, you know, but, um, again, Lewis is great. Mm -hmm. And you know, what's funny. I don't think Lewis would be considered an evangelical if he were alive today. Ooh. Considering his views on scripture. If you read his, um, what does he say about scripture? I actually don't know. There's a, in his book on the Psalms, he, he has this like little thing where he, it's a little book where he writes about different Psalms. I've never read that. And I think on the imprecatory Psalms, the Psalms that are like, mm-hmm. you know, make you feel Calling weird. Calling down, like, fire and brimstone yeah, like on your smash enemies. smash their infants against their own yeah. stuff. I think he says uh, that this is, oh man, I'm going to, I'm going to lose my train of thought here. It was something about like, this might not have been inspired or I think Lewis had, uh, I don't think he was a strict inerrantist. You, you got it. Okay, look. If, if anyone knows for sure, DM that yeah. preach podcast and let us know. But I know that there's been some suspicious stuff with Lewis. And um, is he just saying that the imprecatory Psalms may have been like prayed in bad motives or like maybe, maybe something like that? I just remember picking that up. Somebody in, in one of the countless like inerrancy debates online, like people were saying, don't cite Lewis because he has, he doesn't have a standard. What, Chicago inerrancy? I don't know. <laughs> the one that has withstood the test of 40 years of Don't get time. salty, Paul. Don't get salty. Not for you. But yeah, I mean, I think so. But regardless, that doesn't mean that Lewis, we should discount everything. And I think, you know, it, it, it makes me think about how we're sort of like, not people, nobody gets it 100% right. Except me. Except Paul. But just because Lewis gets something wonky on one thing doesn't mean he's not profitable. Right. I mean, like, there's sometimes when we think that certain leaders are, they just don't get anything wrong. Or when people say, like, I love when people are like, look, we're just trying to be biblical. It's like, well, join the club. We all right, are. Right, right, But that's it's <clears throat> one thing to say we should strive to stick to the text as much as we can. Mm-hmm. It's another thing to say that the way that I'm sticking to the text is the right way. You know, like to, to say that when I'm, when people say this is the biblical version, we're, we're just trying to be biblical in our doctrine. What they mean is my interpretation of these verses is what is biblical. When really it's like, well, but you could have also interpreted it wrong. Are you trying to say that when we look at people historically who have spoken about Christianity, we should not expect them to have everything right. correct or, or that all they, figured out? Or because they didn't agree with you. Right. That they okay. were somehow, they somehow read the same verse as you and were just like, I don't know, right, or right, ignored right. them. Mm-hmm. Maybe some did. 
But I think when you really get into like some of the things that Lewis thinks through, you know, you're like, wow. I mean, you could see why he would be like, I don't know about this or I don't know about that or mm-hmm. I, I don't know. I mean, I, what am I trying to say here? I'm trying to say. <laughs> I don't know what you're trying to say. What I'm trying to say is that just because Lewis might have question marks from an evangelical perspective in one area doesn't mean that evangelicals can't benefit from him in many, many other areas. Oh, sure. Yeah. Right? And I think that goes with any author, any speaker, anything like that. Mm -hmm. You know? And um, I think sometimes we try to make Lewis... Everyone tries to sort of claim Lewis. Mm -hmm. You know, if you're an evangelical or even people who are more mainline or, you know, people just, Lewis is just a great guy to have quote unquote on your side. I, th- I think the same thing with like St. Augustine. Sure. Everyone wants Augustine, mm-hmm. but I don't know if Augustine wants to be on anyone's team. <laughs> you know what I'm saying? And just because Augustine, like, look, there's a lot of reformed people. Right. Calvinists. Yeah. Um, which of we are of the elect of, of few the, of who the- call ourselves that, right? <laughs> <laughs> who are like, Augustine, love him. You know, I remember Al Mohler, you know, mm-hmm. Southern Baptist president, you know, solid theologian guy. I mean, he loves, he loves uh, Augustine. He's, mm-hmm. I think he said that he was, is his famous, favorite theologian. But man, they would not agree on justification by faith alone. Right. They would not agree on baptism. Mm-hmm. They would not agree church on a polity. lot of things. Yeah, church bishops. polity. On a lot. Oh, yeah. I mean, like, I dare say that Augustine would be like, what are you talking right. about? Are you even a Christian? Are you even, yeah, right. <laughs> and so a lot of this is having the perspective of going, look, um, the Christian tradition is wide. There's a lot of breadth to it. And mm-hmm. we need to give a little bit of charity to one another. Absolutely. It doesn't mean that you get all squishy that everybody's right. Mm-hmm. But it does mean that this is difficult. And that we can still benefit from people. They don't have to, you know, we, we, if you only say you can benefit from, benefit from people who, who think exactly like you. Right. Then you're circling the wagons in a very unhelpful way. Mm-hmm. And you end up creating an environment that is like inbred. Right. I think we can all, one big lesson is just that faithfulness to Christ and scripture exists in a in a range and so there's a plurality of ways to be faithful and it doesn't look just like 20th century american evangelicalism right we've got anglicanism we've got we're talking i mean we just did an entire series on the early church and so so yeah we should not expect christianity to just exist in one flavor but we should be willing to humble ourselves and recognize faithfulness as it appears in different traditions so with all that Put to the side. Mm-hmm. All right. So we just talked about Lewis and his, you know, some of his ideas. But one thing he's really good at is talking about the resurrection. And yeah. really, this last section in Miracles is about that grand uh, miracle of the resurrection. Well, actually, <laughs> I guess in the last chapter, he said the grand miracle is the incarnation. But mm-hmm. but this is what he, he calls this the miracle of the new creation. Yeah. And the chapter before it is about the miracles of the old creation. Mm-hmm. It's an interesting distinction he's trying to He's trying to say that there's two different kinds of miracles that Jesus does in his life. Ones that are of the old nature and ones that are of the new nature. And all he means by that is, you know, for example, water turns into wine. Wine creation is a natural process. It's something that happens in nature, in the world. 
Uh, when Jesus heals people of diseases, if there's a cut or a broken bone, those are the sorts of things that happen naturally. Jesus is just speeding up that process. So this is what Lewis calls a miracle of the old nature versus a miracle of the new nature is Jesus doing something that doesn't happen in nature at all. So like walking on water, telling Peter to walk on the water, the resurrection itself, it's not a natural thing. It's not like Jesus is just speeding up some natural process. He's doing something that is a reversal or completely unnatural um, phenomenon. So he, right. yeah, he's, he's dividing up miracles into that. I don't know how helpful of a distinction it is. I don't even know if it's really that important, but he's trying to just set the frame for like understanding the resurrection as a totally new kind of miracle. Well, he talks about Lazarus and Jesus. Mm -hmm. Right. Right. I mean, he's yeah. like Lazarus, God, you know, raises this guy from the dead, mm -hmm. but it's not the same kind of raising from the dead that right. happened to Jesus because he, he dies again. He dies again. Yeah. And so it's this idea that in the resurrection, it's not just restoring <clears throat> somebody to life. Mm -hmm. It's a new kind of life that's been brought in. And yeah. that's what makes it different. Like maybe, you know, and you think about Elijah or you think about, you know, the different miracles that like, again, Lazarus. Right, right, right. What these are is it's taking life and just you're bringing someone back to life. But mm -hmm. resurrection is the elevation to a newer life. Right. And this is the mystery that Paul talks about in 1 Corinthians 15, where it's like, he says the, the old body is sown in dishonor, but it's raised in honor. Right. It's sown in, in mortality, raised in immortality, all that stuff. That there's a new kind of body. You're not just being res resuscitated or yeah, whatever. Yeah. And that, that's important to recognize because Lewis goes, look, when we talk about miracles, we're not just talking about things that just randomly occur. Like he kind of says, it's not like God just shakes the earth and miracles just fall out or he just, right. you know, randomly has nature create miracles or something like that. But they're intended to teach us something. And in the resurrection, what you see is God is saying, look, I'm, I'm renewing all of creation, mm -hmm. beginning with Christ. He's the first fruits, the right. first crop in a new line of crops, the first man in the new humanity. Hmm. And that's the goal because... Adam and Eve, they procreated, they were able to sin. Those are two things we know expressly that's not going to happen in the resurrection. Right. In the new heavens and the earth. We're not going to mm -hmm. be able to sin and we're not going to procreate. There's not going to be marriage in heaven. Right. So the kind of life that Jesus rises to is a new kind of human life. It's not just going back to Adam, but it's going back and then beyond Adam hmm. to a new state. Yeah. Probably the state that Adam would have achieved had he obeyed consistently. Does that mean that like if Adam had obeyed, Adam would have become a non-procreative being? I don't know. I mean, there might have been something where he would have eventually been given access to the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. Um, one Is of the things that uh, I think James Jordan, he, he talks Michael about Jordan's this. younger brother. Michael Jordan's younger brother. <laughs> but uh, James Jordan, he's a Presbyterian theologian. Controversial in some circles, mm -hmm. but that's why we like him. One of the things he talks about is mankind is born in a state of innocence, not just with regard to they haven't sinned, but like they're sort of in a baby state. God has to directly tell them what to do and what not to do. Mm -hmm. In other words, they're not ready for the knowledge of good and evil. They're not ready for, they haven't internalized the truth. They haven't internalized the law to the point where they can make their own decisions. Hmm. They haven't reached a level of maturity. And what you see in Adam receiving or Adam failing to protect his family against the, the serpent is his immaturity. He does not have the discernment and wisdom to say this influence is a bad influence hmm. or neither does Eve. And so they're sort of in this, Satan preys upon their innocent childlike state 
And uh, so they're not ready for the tree of knowledge of good and evil because they're not at the maturity level to wield wisdom correctly. And it's because they're in that vulnerable state that Satan comes in and attacks them. It's, so, still, it's still interesting that there's like humanity changes and there's no procreation in the new creation. You're stuck on that, man. I know. No, no I mean, it is, it is just, bizarre. It's I mean, weird that like when we think of like, I don't know what to do with that. Well, <laughs> one of the things is when you think about this old creator, the, the current creation, yeah. you know, whatever, mm -hmm. is that we don't have one the, the, it's it, the creation procreation was a mechanism to multiply image bearers mm -hmm. that's part of the mission so so God, there's no new image bearers in the new creation right there would be no need to create new image bearers it, mm -hmm. it would be that that phase would be complete hmm. they've already populated the earth and cultivated and dominated it so if you think about it in in eden it's it's not yet it's a it's a world without sin right or, you know but or at least Adam <laughs> and Eve are untouched by sin. But it's not a completed thing yet. Because if it were, God wouldn't tell Adam, I want you to uh, multiply. So basically, he, God's saying, I need you to finish this work by multiplying image bearers and by cultivating the earth. So he kind of places Adam in the garden as sort of a co-worker with God. Not, I don't, yeah, yeah, no. you get what I'm saying, right? But it's the idea that, look, there's still a mission to be done. And the idea is that that mission will be completed one day, that we would have multiplied enough and the earth would have fully been subdued under the reign of Adam, under the reign of God. But that cultivation process, you might think, would still extend to the new creation. There might still that be might farmers be and builders and miners and artsmen well, what, and craftsmen. And, and what's amazing is when you read the Genesis account, when you, when you see the creation of the land and the seas, it's teeming with life. What you mm -hmm. see is a creation that is itself filled with creative possibility and power. Right. And what the man does is he unleashes that. Mm -hmm. He subdues the animals so that they can bring about more life. So Adam is this sort of agent of creation. Mm -hmm. oh, I don't want to say it that way. But no, no, yeah, yeah. He, he's, he's somebody that God has entrusted with doing this work to cultivate the creation that God has given to him. And... What we see is that there is something royal about being a human being. Yeah. Adam and Eve are sort of this king and queen that God has given a little kingdom in mm -hmm. Eden, and they're meant to spread it. And in the fall, they lose that royal status, in a sense. Right. But not permanently. And I, so I sometimes think that the, the image of God may be a reference to that royal status, that royal imagery. But We should do an episode just should, on that. We should do an episode on that. But anyway, what James Jordan says is that they were meant to grow in their obedience to God until they hit a point of maturity to which they could become these sort of wise, royal men and women they were supposed to become. And if you think about it, if you look in the biblical narrative, wisdom is associated with kings. The kings were meant to understand and internalize the law so they could be wise and make wise decisions. Well, I mean, and also scripture says that even Jesus learned obedience through his right. suffering, even right. though he was born sinless. Right. So learning new mm -hmm. things does not mean you're not perfect. Right. It just means you will learn those new things perfectly. Mm -hmm. Right. But anyway, that was a huge digression. <laughs> it was interesting though. That's what we do. But the whole idea that Lewis is getting at is the resurrection is the elevation of our humanity. It's showing what God thinks about humanity, that he would not only become like us, but he would also resurrect right. us.
that he would become like us to raise us up with him. And uh, so when we think about what the resurrection is, it's the first act of God's new creation. It's the first act of showing, oh, wow, this is a new world that's being birthed in the midst of this present age. Mm. And he, he makes the point that the disciples, they didn't see the resurrection, meaning they didn't actually see Jesus right. open his eyes and rise from the dead, yeah. but they saw the resurrected Christ. They right. saw the kind of human being he was. Mm-hmm. And that's telling because that's really the emphasis. It's not just that, oh, you see God raise Jesus and then you go, oh, I guess there's an afterlife. Mm-hmm. Well, they all believed there was an afterlife. Right. They didn't need to know that your soul goes on after the grave. They already knew that. Hmm. What they needed to know was that God was resurrecting humanity just like he had promised. Right. That God was going to bring back or, or re-glorify or glorify humanity hmm. through the resurrection of Christ. Because his resurrection is our resurrection. That's yeah. what the book of Romans is all about, basically. Hmm. And it's it's almost like the resurrection... It, it, it violates categories of expectation, like you were saying, um, because the resurrection is supposed to be not, it's supposed to be fundamentally novel and new, not like, so we see resuscitations or whatever you want to call them in the Old Testament, people coming back from the dead. We see Jesus doing that with Jairus's daughter and Lazarus, um, but we also see the resurrection of Christ as more than just those things, because it's a... It's a bringing back to life that will never end, but it's also not like a spirit, like a purely spiritual thing. It is. Right. It's it's embodied. Jesus is not merely an apparition. Um, and Lewis talks about how that that is uncomfortable. The fact that the resurrected body is still embodied with um, locally bound bound in space time, and then and then he brings up the extra like problem or kink of having to explain where the body of Jesus is now in the ascension. If Jesus were just a ghost, then it would you know be easy to explain where he is now. But now you've got scripture telling us that Jesus ascends and is no longer physically on the earth. But then you're like, well, where is he? And where is he located? And is he still subject to time and space and all this stuff? And is he literally sitting at the right hand of the father? And all these sorts of theological questions arise when you have a resurrected body on your hands Um, And so these narratives are, it would have been easy almost to go the apparition or the ghost route, but the fact that they included details about Jesus eating and walking um, and emphasizing the physicality of the resurrected state poses lots of other philosophical problems. And they knew that people didn't, one, just randomly rise from the dead. Yeah. And two, they never would have expected that he would have arisen in the way that he did. Mm Mm-hmm. Right, in this glorified humanity. I'm sorry we have this buzzing noise on our podcast. I have no idea what this is. It's it's, it's, right. it's, it's a satanic attack upon our podcast equipment. Gives a character. Gives a character. But something I wanted to talk about, though, was something that Lewis mentions where he's like, look, a lot of these objections, it's because we sort of have naturalism, the idea that there's nothing beyond the physical world, ingrained in our bones. Hmm. And he's like, look, you know, you can have all these great proofs of the resurrection, but man, at the end of the day... You know, it's kind of like you just sort of feel like miracles are impossible. And it's hard to fight that visceral knee-jerk reaction. Because we're like, even as Christians, we're like, yeah, we believe Jesus rose from the dead. But I don't know. I believe that, but we weren't there to see it. And that doesn't mean that God does stuff now. It just means that at one point in history, he did something cool. Mm -hmm. Right? 
And Lewis is like, look, that's not a theological argument. I mean, every Christian would affirm the supernatural or else right. you're not a Christian. Mm -hmm. And every Christian ought to affirm, affirm the resurrection. But then you kind of get to your daily routine and you're kind of like, I mean, how do I put it? Don't you feel like there should be, we should be seeing more miracles? If the Jesus, if Christ really is raised from the dead, you know, if, if, if God really can do these things and why don't we see it more? And I know not all the time, otherwise the, the whole point of miracles is that they don't happen a lot. But don't you think like, man, what, shouldn't we be seeing it at least a little bit more than we seem to be seeing it now? I totally feel that objection sometimes. And I yeah. think, I think the lack of observing miracles is like it perpetuates a cycle of lack of faith. So you don't have faith that miracles will happen, but also because you don't observe lots of miracles, it makes you think that your prayer is not as efficacious. And so you don't feel yeah, pray, inclined yeah. to play, right, pray right. as much. But then also it's probably because of that lack of faith that you don't see as many miracles to begin with. And so I don't know. I, I think I definitely have a lack of faith. I don't pray for miracles. Maybe I'm too like scientific or yeah, Calvinistic too. in That's my right. Yeah. Don't drink that. Don't drink that. Uh, scientific Kool Calvinistic Kool-Aid. I know. Right. <laughs> but, uh, Lewis, he says something about that where he's like, a lot of the miraculous things are tied to great occurrences. And he, he's sort of like this. You're going to see the miracles if you're on the front lines. Yeah. Kind of idea. And he yeah. talks about like, are you a martyr? Are you a, a missionary? Are you mm -hmm. an apostle? Like, why would you think it would just show up in your ordinary life? <clears throat> it's not like God just does weird things, just whatever. Like the idea of miracles is they're very much tied to the mission that God is sending. So maybe that's the reason why <clears throat> you, you, know, you always hear about missionaries seeing crazy stuff or your, your yeah. friend's cousin's friend's cousin who was a missionary in China saw this one thing happen. And um, hmm. maybe we ought to want to ask ourselves, are we willing to be in the position in which miracles happen, which might require suffering or sacrifice or doing service toward the needy? I mean, like, mm -hmm. you know, I remember Francis Chan had, he talked about, and this is more just answered prayer than miracle. And that's right. another issue too, where it's like, sometimes people are like, you know, oh, but every day is a miracle. The sun rose. It's a miracle. A child being born. I'm like, you know what I'm talking about. I'm not talking about that. Like, like it's become semantics. I'm like, I'm talking about like, let's see the, this tumor get out of this person. Violations body. of the natural yeah, order. Just like, let's yeah. see something that you're just like, God did that. Mm -hmm. Wow. And not try to play PR of like, well, but he worked through the da da da. He does. But you get what I'm saying? Like, we, we, we kind of always have these qualifications. When we're really, we're like, I think we should be seeing more stuff. I don't know. Maybe it's just me. Yeah, maybe that is just you. No, oh, thank you, Paul. No, I. I mean, I think I think you're right, and I think that uh, it's a nice explanation, and it's a nice theory to say that God's divine interventions accompany the advancement of the gospel, and that that seems to be a pattern that we see in the New Testament and in the early church that. Jesus's exorcism and healing ministry accompanied the preaching and the breaking in sure. of the, the the new message and 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 the signs were there with the early church to validate and uh, give credentials to to authenticate the message and you could see that that is also true with maybe missionary efforts going to new places but 
maybe in places where the gospel is already proclaimed and well-known, it's not, God doesn't do miracles to the same extent. I don't know. I mean, that seems to be what Lewis is saying, and it might be true. I just don't know. And that's the hard thing. And you don't want to get to the place where you're like, God has to do miracles for me to believe him because that's putting God to the test mm-hmm. or that like God's like this vending machine or your personal like dancing monkey that you go, if I do this, he'll do this. And, and, or just wanting to be entertained by the spectacle of miracles. Mm-hmm. You know, I think like you look at movements <clears throat> like Bethel, you know, yeah. where it, part of the draw is like, Oh, you know, crazy stuff is happening there. And it's like, should that be the draw? And hmm. you know, you, you wonder if it's feeding an unhealthy culture of spectacle, an unhealthy culture of, of being unsatisfied with the ordinary, but then you don't want to flip to the other side. I was and, just going to say, and, yeah. And just almost like, I mean, I think about it, like, are you having a hard time with something in your life? Are you, are you feeling tired all the time? Um, is there significant relational troubles? Um, could somebody in your life be, you know, possessed or something? I don't even know. And you think, do we kind of roll our eyes thinking that prayer for that fervent prayer or calling God to act in a miraculous supernatural way? Do we kind of roll our eyes at that? I think we do sometimes. I mean, what did Jesus say? You know, he's like, don't, don't worry about whether I'm going to be faithful. I'm wondering if I come here, will I find faith on the earth? Hmm. And, yeah. uh, and, I, and he's not just talking about like faith and justification by faith alone and the Protestant solos and all that stuff. He's saying like, <laughs> no, no, no. When I mean faith, I mean like, do you believe that if you're in this boat with me, I'm going to stop creation? Right. And I'm going to stop this water. Mm-hmm. You know, do you believe that through prayer and fasting, you can cast out these demons? And sometimes we try to sanitize it. You know, Jesus in the boat. It's like, he's in the boat. Don't worry about whether you can pay your mortgage, or, yeah, of course. Right. But also, like, he was like, I could stop water. Mm-hmm. You know, I, I, I can protect you from things. Like, I mean, it, it just the claims, I don't know if we really take them for all they're worth. I don't think we do. And I think this is, this is the point that I was trying to get at when I talked about the lack of faith. And just going back to your what you said about spectacle, you're right. that That's one, one error on one side of the spectrum, which is the sort of, craving or chasing chasing the spectacle chasing the the stuff that's out of the ordinary but there is a there might be a healthy instinct in there which is just craving god's hand and and a move of god on people's lives and marriages and healings and if you look at populations that are destitute or impoverished or oppressed uh, look at the people that jesus came to in the first century when he quoted from Isaiah when he was in the in the synagogue that day he said I came to to heal the sick to free those who are in bondage that kind of message is really really powerful and compelling to people who are suffering and so that so I think we should crave that I think we should want that and we should seek that I'm not saying this in like a sort of thrill seeking, like follow the revival all over, but we should, we should have faith that God will do these things. Um, and maybe sometimes we don't have the faith. We don't feel a need for God to do these things because, because we're not in that situation. We don't belong to that category of people who are oppressed, hungry, sick, under famine, um, under like tyranny, right? Like, but that, that is the kind of like, that is first century Judaism, like those, those were the people there waiting their Messiah, waiting for someone to come and, and break spiritual strongholds and things like that. And yeah, I think part of maybe our inoculated Western existence 
uh, doesn't leave much room for that kind of radical faith. And it, even experientially, it just seems like sometimes you read some of the church fathers, there's like a, a deep sense of God's presence. It's almost stuff that if you read today, you'd be like, oh, this is some kind of fruity new age. Yeah, stuff. yeah. And I think there is, when you read the Gospels, when you read Acts, even when you read Paul, you're kind of like, man, they're not just talking about principles of living. Mm-hmm. They're talking about power. They're saying that, like, this is beyond philosophy. It's like there is power that God's presence shakes things up. It actually changes things. Hmm. And um, I wonder if we really do lack faith, if there's something we can learn from our charismatic brothers and sisters about faith, you know? Yeah. And there is something about being highly intellectual. It's important. I think you need to have foundations in intellect and and. You know, we're all about that, but I don't know if we really heed the warnings of, you know, are you a, a, a clanging symbol? Mm-hmm. You know, do you, do you not have the fruit of the spirit in your life that, that gives you the character to handle that kind of knowledge? But not just that, but like, do we really believe that God still does things, still works through us? Because it's like most of us aren't asking for a Lamborghini. Or, right. You know, when people are like, well, God doesn't promise you, you know, health and happiness. Well, yeah, of course. Mm-hmm. He doesn't promise you that. But sometimes we take that as, and go, well, then I'm not going to pray for healing. Right. Because that'd be going against that. Right. It's like, man, I don't know. If your daughter is sick, mm-hmm. a lot of that's sort of posturing. Like we just, we're just too, like we don't want to be disappointed mm. and we don't want to be seen as foolish for believing that God could do something like that. That's really good. Yeah. I think that's exactly right. And we, we hide, I think as a reformed, you know, somewhat intellectual guy, whatever, we hide behind it. We hide mm-hmm. behind. We hide our lack of faith behind a, a cynicism, a, a kind of, well, you know, it's much more sophisticated than just trusting that God will help you in this minor matter. Well, it's just a fear of disappointment. It's just a fear of disappointment. Yeah, you know, and um, man, this is the spiciest you've been all. Yeah, well, series. it's something I've been thinking about a yeah. lot, especially this book, Miracles, where you can argue and go. Oh, I have really good arguments that miracles are possible. Mm-hmm. <laughs> and you're like, great. But there's a disconnect there where it's like, okay, but it's almost like, are they probable? Yeah. <laughs> you know what I'm saying? Like, are they, are they attainable? Are they attainable? Yeah, are they, are right. they can, does it touch down into our lives? Mm-hmm. You know? And I, I almost wonder the only way you're going to, counteract the people who are sensationalizing miracles and stuff, I think is by presenting a positive vision of, of what the supernatural looks like in the lives of Christians. Mm -hmm. I mean, even with, you talk about people who say the gift of tongues, prophecy and healing don't continue. Fine. But what about exorcisms? I mean, (laughs) you know, unless we think that demons don't possess people anymore. Like, I mean, I remember I met a guy who talked about, you know, he was kind of joking, like, all oh, these people go to seminary, never exercise one demon, you know? And I'm like, okay, that's a little ridiculous. It is a little ridiculous. But at the same time, you're kind of like, well, you know what I'm saying? I mean, like, if we believe the Bible's word of God and it's talking about exorcisms and that happens, maybe we need a seminary class on that. Wow. That's a hot take. I don't know. I mean, it's something that I would like <clears> to go <throat> with, but miracles really just stimulated that in me because it's just like... Yes, the resurrection happened. 
but we just state it as a bare fact. And we know that we can't deny it, but it doesn't seem to affect our daily lives on what we think can be possible if the resurrection happened. And it seems like in the early church, and they suffered, Mm -hmm. and it wasn't easy, but they believed that so much was possible. And without getting into vain idealism, without losing our minds in sort of just fantasizing about, you know, all these different things, is there still a kernel of godly wonder and sense of like, if Jesus is risen from the dead, if miracles are possible, can we not ask for these to happen? Can we not have faith that God could do something in our time? I mean, I, I, I agree with all that. I think you can still appreciate the miracle of the resurrection and live in light of it just by... So when Paul says, if, if Christ is not raised, your faith is futile. If Christ is not raised, eat, drink, and be merry for tomorrow we die. Hmm. The resurrection does have a... Practical, like... Absolutely. Ordinary import. Yeah. Yeah. It, it, it changes right. the right. way you look at your life. Right. Like so It's not like, just final. Yeah, don't, don't, don't diss your grandparents <clears throat> for living an ordinary, humble life. Yeah. That's just as glorifying as the resurrection right. as somebody who's like traveling the world trying to heal everybody or something. I mean, basically, the resurrection reframes your life. It tells you to look at your life through the lens of eternity as this 80 years that you're given is a drop in the ocean of eternal life. And so it's true that if, if, if this 80 years is all that exists, sure, eat, drink, and be merry, live as lavishly and extravagantly as you can. Uh, you know, so all sort of like, there's a lot of the motivation for living well and caring for others is sort of undercut in that picture. But if, if the resurrection is true, then it frees me to, like Paul says, put others above myself and to, to treat people as if I would myself. And, and Jesus' parable of the great uh, Good Samaritan, um, it, it really just gives you a different lens through which you see the world and helps you prioritize and, and see things through a different framework. So basically to sum it up, one, miracles... Uh, should be something that we shouldn't be afraid of and that maybe we need more faith for in our daily lives. But two, we don't want to be so caught up that we neglect that the resurrection shapes our ordinary lives too. And in fact, more so, it, it, the most the most relevant things are the ordinary things in our lives and those have to be shaped by the resurrection. The, the miracle of the resurrection gives us an internal perspective to place the needs of others above our own, to love people, to love people freely, to have hope and suffering. That's the big thing. And we should major on that. But majoring on that doesn't mean neglecting the fact that there's possibility, that if the resurrection is true, that miracles can happen, maybe we should hope for them. Maybe we should even, in some cases, expect them to happen. And I think we can have both without falling to either side of the ditch. And uh, But we got to keep the primary things primary, recognizing that, look, these are not things that we should expect to happen all the time, but maybe we could expect them more than we currently are <laughs> and we can and maybe we can leave it at that but it's good food for thought hopefully you guys enjoyed this series we're going to be coming back with a new series next week but if you got questions dm them our instagram is that'll preach podcast send us questions we'd love to answer them uh, on air on the podcast and uh, continue these conversations as well we are signing off thank you for listening see you next week